Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 133 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Tiago Forte. Tiago is the founder of Forte Labs, one of the most respected productivity and knowledge management minds on the planet, and the author of the book Building a Second Brain. In the next hour, you're going to learn what a second brain is, how you can build your own and the time and productivity benefits that come along with it, the four steps to capture, organize, distill and express every piece of useful information you've ever encountered to unlock way more capacity and ability from your brain. Whether or not Tiago really is the superhuman productivity god that the internet would have you believe, why the answers to your biggest productivity problems won't be solved by an app or a plugin, but rather by looking introspectively and asking yourself difficult questions and so much more. I first encountered Tiago back in 2019 and I've been following his work ever since. I picked up a copy of Building a Second Brain the day it came out and it is a phenomenal book. This system really is useful beyond words. This is a conversation that I know you're going to get an enormous amount of value from and I can't wait for you to listen to it. But just before then, if you are new here, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now. And also do me a favor, head over to the YouTube, just search my name on YouTube, Sean Spooner, click subscribe. There are so many more great conversations like this one coming your way, including, hopefully, with none other than Ali Abdal. He agreed on Twitter the other night to come on the podcast. He invited me to his studio to record with him to create the conversation that I've been trying to make happen since December 2020. So hopefully that will come through. I'm not sure yet, but we can hold Ali to his word. I'm sure he'll be good for it. Head over to YouTube, subscribe, and it will mean that you won't miss that conversation or any of the other great ones that are coming up between now and then. But in the meantime, here it is. Episode number 133 of Life and Lessons with Tiago Forte. So Tiago Forte, thank you for being here. Yeah, good to be here, Sean. What do you have in common with Taylor Swift? (laughs) Great place to start, yes. Uh, Taylor Swift, pop goddess, uh, not that much in common (laughs) to be honest. Uh, but one thing we do have in common is we are both highly committed to digital note-taking. Um, I watched a number of documentaries that Taylor has put out over the years. Uh, most of them have to do with just her life, her behind the scenes of her concerts, but most of them also kind of show these little scenes from her kind of you know, personal creative process, you know, lounging in the green room, hanging out with friends at home with her family. And there's these little scenes where she's on her phone. And then like we all are all the time, but then she says something or kind of, you see a, you know, a glance of the screen and she's not always on social media. She's in her notes. She's writing down little snippets. She's writing down, you know, hooks for songs. She's writing down observations about people, about human behavior, about relationships. Um, And then in one of the documentaries, a more recent one, she talks about how that's her songwriting process. There's no like special room she goes into with special lighting and special, you know, music to write, quote unquote, write songs. She's in a sense, always writing songs. 
And she even in that in that excerpt points to, you know, specific lines of her best selling hits often came from she's washing the dishes, she's driving in the car and this little snatch of music or this one line, you know, kind of uh, catches her her attention. Uh, and then she she says, my songs are simply just the amalgamation of, you know, the best ideas I've had about songs one after the other, uh, which I think is just an incredible testament to how creativity is emergent. It's always happening. It's always running in the background. All you have to do is reach out and capture it and save it. And you'll be as creative as, you know, a multi-platinum uh, best-selling musician like Taylor Swift. And so as you hinted at in your answer there, we're here today to talk about the collection and the making use of knowledge so that it's always there and ready for us as part of your system of building a second brain. And of course, I'm sure many people listening will know that it's a methodology of yours that you've become well known for, but I imagine that it hasn't always been that way, right? So take me back to a moment before you had started really working on this methodology. What was it in your life that caused you to realize that you needed a second brain? Yeah, you know, I tell the story in the book, but basically it was a mysterious chronic health condition. Uh, when I was 22 years old, you know, just graduating from college, just starting to think about my career, thinking about the future, one day having a family, you know, adulting, basically just starting to, to do adulting. <laughs> um, I was working at the Apple store in an Apple store in San Diego. And uh, I started having this weird pain and tension in my throat, in my neck. And over time, it grew and grew and grew, got worse and worse until a few years later, I had trouble speaking, had trouble swallowing, had trouble laughing or singing. It was really a all-consuming, debilitating feeling inside of me that grew to just dominate my, my waking uh, attention. And the American medical system is such that chronic conditions especially require you to basically have a, a part-time job. Manage, you, know, you become the, the project manager of your condition. Every day, practically, you're receiving forms and tests and diagnostics and claim sheets and reimbursement forms and you're having having to make really complex decisions that you know hopefully you in the UK don't have to make you know choosing who to go to for service and the wrong choice might be a a 5 or 10x difference in what you end up paying because the person is in network or out of network or they're covered or they're not covered and so it's kind of this this insane situation where right at the moment that you're at your worst you know, you're in pain, especially if it's a mental condition, neurological condition, pain condition, you are at your lowest point, your lowest capacity right at that moment is when you become saddled with just unbelievable amounts of information and decisions. And so I just turned to my computer and to digital notes at the time I was using Microsoft Word. That was the only, you know, software for managing information that I knew about at that time. Uh, just putting things and, and organizing them in a Word doc. Uh, I, I turned to that out of desperation just to manage this experience. Uh, and then that worked well. I, I found through my note-taking a series of lifestyle changes, changes to my diet, my mental health, my sleep, my uh, self-care that helped me you know, resolve my condition. But then I, I took that same approach and I thought, wait a minute, this seems to be like a general problem-solving approach. Why don't I use this to get my first job? And then I'll use it to teach English overseas. And then I'll use it to serve in the Peace Corps in Eastern Europe. 
And then I'll use it to start a blog and then a podcast and then a business and then serve corporate clients and coach people. And honestly, I feel very blessed because that same general approach has just been the pivotal thing for me at almost every important stage of my life the past 15 years. Uh, And that's why I teach it now is if you're facing some sort of problem or change or challenge, you can benefit from something like this. So you compare in the book a uh, a second brain as somewhat analogous to what we would have seen in history as a commonplace book. And I was explaining just before we started recording that, you know, this podcast is 132 episodes in or something. And those who listen frequently will know that I bang on constantly. I've always said that everybody should have their own podcast because even if they don't release it, it's this place where you can just document your thoughts and your knowledge and then collate it. And you might go back 106 weeks and pull out a thought that you didn't realize was related, right? And I think what I've been trying to say all along isn't that people should buy a Sure SM7B and get a podcast, but rather that they should keep a common book, right? So let's begin there. What is a commonplace book and why should everybody keep one? Yeah, so a commonplace book is this, this curious practice that you find throughout history. Uh, it's like this, this thread woven throughout the history of humanity, uh, goes back as far as, at least as far as the Romans and Greeks, you know, the word commonplace comes from the Greek practice of, you know, they had courts of law, they had democracy and democracy is very information intensive, right? You have to keep track of candidates and their platforms and who voted for what and the tallies. And then you have votes on all the laws. It's like democracy is great, but you have to be able to manage very large amounts of information. And so they came up with this kind of obvious idea. They were like, okay, let's just save all the information we need to run our our society in one central place, one common place. And that became the word commonplace for just the centralized place where important information is kept. Uh, And then that same solution kept popping up, usually at moments in history where there was too much information to manage, right? So another one was the Enlightenment and the Renaissance. Suddenly there was all this change, all this innovation happening at all levels of society. And so, I mean, the classic example is Leonardo da Vinci. You know, he, he was a polymath. He was a Renaissance man, right? Well, how can you study, I mean, multiple fields? He studied opt. I'm reading the, uh, the biography right now from Walter Isaacson. He studied dozens, dentistry, optics, fluid dynamics, physics, the, you know, all these fields um, were documented or researched in his notebooks, which have now become famous. But then again, you know, later on during the Industrial Revolution, again, so much change happening. People needed to make sense of what was happening. And so they turned to these, again, commonplace books, which at the time were just these notebooks, these paper like journals where they would write quotes and Bible verses and poems and recipes. It was this jumble, mishmash, informal, messy collection of knowledge through one filter, which is what matters to me, what's important for me. And I think I would say we're, we're at another one of these pivotal moments in history where there's way too much to keep track of. And so once again, we're turning to a commonplace book, except with one key difference, which is we can do it digitally, which brings all these powers and new capabilities that no one in the past ever had, makes it easier than ever before. Uh, And so that's where we're at now. So that digital commonplace book is built for each of us using the second brain uh, framework, right? And there's a 
there's a structure to it. Code nicely spells out. Uh, capture, organize, distill, and express. So let's dive into each of those four areas, right? Let's start with capture. Perhaps the most obvious piece of the puzzle, but at least speaking from personal experience, definitely the one that is most prone to overthinking, right? Do I capture yeah. this? Do I note this down? What do I do, right? So in building our second brains, what should we be collecting and how? Yes. So code is really the methodology. It's the steps that you follow to build a second brain and also to use a second brain. And you're right. Capture is the first hurdle. It's, it's like the chasm between the physical world and the digital world, right? Even if you're, if you're, what you're looking at is, is already digital. It's on a website. It's on social media. It's in your email. Even then there's a chasm to get it from basically the public sphere some place that other people can access, other people can change it to your private digital sphere, which is a notes app, a digital notes app where no one else gets to decide what goes there except you. Um, and so we, so capture is, is really a, a step that is worth thinking through. Um, there's a whole category of, of apps and tools called capture tools. And that includes a paper notebook for me is a capture tool. It's, there's certain advantages to writing things down on paper, but then, I want to capture it digitally so it can be searched, annotated, rearranged, all that stuff. Um, there's apps like Readwise, which automatically imports highlights from like a Kindle ebook or an online article uh, with no further action on your part into your digital notes without, you know, any action needed. Um, I mean, there's dozens of others. We could talk about web clippers, integrations, little menu bar helpers. Um, apps like, uh, shortcuts from Apple, which allow you to integrate one app with another. Uh, what I would just say is it just takes a more or less one time setup. You just have to think through, you really just need three, four, five methods of capture, probably cover 80% of the content you consume, like really focus on the 80, 20 here. Uh, and you can save the, the funny thing here is you're already consuming that content, right? You're already doing the work. You're already putting in all the effort to read, listen, watch. Just spend an extra 5 10%, not even, to get it into a place that you own and that you control. And so I like what you speak about in the book of the idea that the, the filter as to whether you should or shouldn't capture something is whether you feel compelled. It'd be interesting to hear you speak a bit more about your experience with that, because that's where I've always struggled, right? I almost second guess whether I'll need it in the future before I actually get around to capturing it. And then before I know it, the moment's gone and I have no knowledge. Yeah, a couple of things I'll say. So first, a lot of what you capture won't ever be needed, right? If you put on yourself the requirement, 100% of what I capture has to be useful and relevant and actionable tomorrow, you're going to be mired in indecision, right? Because you just don't know. Part of the, the power of all this is you can capture quite widely and essentially save it for your future self to decide whether, whether to do anything with it and what to do with it. Which is why it's so important that capture be frictionless, right? Capture of all the four steps needs to be the most automated, the most simple and effortless. Uh, not just because of what, you know, what we were just talking about, but also because most of the value comes later, right? When you capture something, no value has been created, right? An idea written down isn't inherently valuable. It's what you do with it. It's how you refine it and develop it and apply it to something concrete that matters. So you have to preserve your energy and your time in the early steps and save your effort for the later steps, which is where you really add value. 
Um, and that's why I point people to things like Readwise. There's another one called IFTTT, which is a kind of a difficult acronym, but it stands for If This Then That. Um, look at things like um, some notes apps allow you to have an email and to forward it directly to your notes app. So I just have, you know, the special email address they give you saved in my contacts in my in my Gmail. And I can just start typing, you know, Evernote and just hit send and it forwards it directly there. Uh, so it's these little little tips and tricks and shortcuts that often make the difference to making it kind of seamless and frictionless. Do you find in your experience that people, once they begin to trust the other three steps of the process, then capture more? Is, is that inertia of thinking, well, I'm not going to do anything with it, kind of buck-ended once people start to get into the next three steps? Yes. Yes. That is such a great observation. Uh, that's true of all the steps. That's true of all the steps. All the steps are preparing you and setting you up for the subsequent step, right? They're, they're preparatory. They're like, they're like priming. They're getting ready. What are they getting you ready for is the last step, which is express, which is communicating your message, spreading your idea, persuading other people to adopt your point of view, uh, sharing a product or a service, selling something, sharing content you created, have basically having something in your brain have some impact on someone or something that matters to you outside your head. And it's only when you actually do that and get, and get one idea even to the very end of that process that you start to realize what you should be capturing in the first place, right? It's like, like a really concrete example is with writing. I used to save like many dozens of, I'd say like 50 to 100 notes, you know, I'd do like tons of research, many, many hours. I'd spend 20, 30 hours doing research to finally produce this written piece, mostly because I was insecure, right? Oh no, I need all the data and I need like so many sources for every single assertion that I make and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what that resulted in was pieces that were way too long, way too complicated, way too convoluted, right? No one likes to read writing where you're constantly like having to like overly prove every single point. I mean, what I'm doing is not science. It's just, it's like educational entertainment content. And so over time, I, as I saw that and saw that no one was reading what I was writing because it was just too complicated and long, I started reducing, reducing and reducing until at this point, I only have maybe three to five sources. I only need to like have three to five stories, metaphors, data points, pieces of research. And then I'm kind of triangulating the story that I want to tell. And I can do it in a tiny fraction of the time, put it out there, get feedback and using that feedback, produce the next piece. It's like instead of spending, you know, months going very slowly through the four steps of code, it's like I'm trying to get through the four steps in like two or three days, come back to the beginning, do another iteration, come back to the beginning. It's like what I'm optimizing for is the speed of that cycle and the number of times that I go through it, not trying to do each step perfectly, which is where most people tend to get bogged down. So the next step is actually exactly where I get bogged down. Um, I was, I've always fallen short here, right? Just before we spoke, I went into my Apple notes uh, and there are 2,773 notes in there. None of them are tagged or folded. I stopped using Apple notes maybe two years ago. So I literally don't know what's in there. Like I, I haven't looked in there once since I stopped using it. So 2,700 redundant notes, arguably inside of bear, the app I now use 1,220 notes very few are folded and where they are folded uh, you actually speak to this in a book i kind of tried to second guess what folders would exist before i made the notes so then nothing really lines up 
So yeah. others don't make the mistake that I did. How can others avoid that trap, right? What is the correct way to organize all of this capture? Yes, th this is really the heart of the book is organizing. Um, I mean, the most common situation when people seek me out is they've often captured stuff. You know, they have a ton of notes in their inbox. They have a ton of Apple notes. They have a ton of even just files, word processing files in their documents folder. And they're like, okay, so I've solved the, the capture problem, but that's just created a worse problem, which is too much stuff everywhere. Um, and I have a framework for that, which is called Para, right? Which we can get into if you'd like, but it just operates on a few principles. One is that organizing is kind of just, a, it's like a safety net. Uh, search is your go-to solution for finding stuff. Search is 80, 90% of the time, the only solution you need, right? Like 80 to 90% of the time when I'm looking for something, even if I'm not even sh exactly sure what I'm looking for, I'm doing a search. And so what is the purpose of folders then? It's not to meticulously like a library catalog, put every single title right on the shelf of the, you know, of the library where, you know, when you have that exact number, it's like 0.3. I don't know how it works in the UK, but we have like a call number that tells you exactly where that book goes. That there's no point to that when you can use search. And so para, the, the approach that I recommend is very loose. Instead of these very hyper narrow categories or these super broad categories like psychology or business or whatever, it is just four categories that are sorted according to how actionable they are. Your current projects, your areas of responsibility, potentially useful or interesting resources, and archives everything from the previous three categories that is no longer active. And this is usually the, the, the sort of life transforming moment when people realize that, yes, they can get organized in minutes, not hours, and that that approach to organization is not only acceptable, it's actually superior to any highly elaborate, detailed classification system they've ever seen. And that once they do that, suddenly, all these worries and fears about where is it? I'm going to lose track of it. It's falling through the cracks are, are essentially gone, which creates the space and the clarity for what they actually care about, which is making things, creating things, having an impact, changing something. So that is para, which we can, we can go into if you'd like, but that is basically, it's an approach to organizing digital information that makes sense for the era that we live in now, which is the, the search era. What I liked about Para uh, when reading the book is that I'll be honest, I yes, absolutely, I agree that you know ninety percent of the use case of my notes that I say I don't use, I do use them by search them, and the search features are quite good. But I feel like what I'm missing out on, and what would eventually trip me up when it comes through to expressing and connecting these thoughts and making kind of new pathways, is that because. I hadn't organized them into say projects or areas of responsibility. There's no mechanism by which I can actually connect thoughts. So if something happened two years ago uh, and then something happened this week and they would pair lovely together for say a client pitch currently with my lack of system without para, um, it almost seems like everything stops at organize, right? If you yeah. don't do that, like you say, actually it feeds into it. If you don't do the organize because I didn't do the organize, nothing else works. Yeah. Yeah, I think people really get caught up because they, they have a, a vision of what they think organizing looks like that is mostly informed by, I think, like Instagram, inspirational Instagram accounts that post these beautiful, aesthetically pleasing desktops where each the pencil is 
everything is so cute and neat or they see on Pinterest or really anywhere, YouTube, Twitter. Uh, we've fallen for this trap that organizing is an aesthetic matter, that it, it's, it's how things look. And I don't think that way at all. To me, if it looks too pretty, it's probably not functional, right? When I am the most productive and I am just getting the most done and making the most progress and I look around my physical space or my digital workspace, it's a disaster. And that's that's necessary. I don't have I can't afford to keep things tidy all along the way when I'm trying to reach a certain goal. Right. And so I'm suspicious of aesthetics. Um, and yet it is important to get organized. We're just unclear on what that means. To me, it simply means one thing. All the information that you need to move forward is in one accessible, centralized place, which is the project folders or tags or notebooks in para. That's what it is. Right. It is just a place that you can work that only has information relevant to what you're working on. I know, I'm not sure this says about me, but my mind when you were describing that utility over aesthetics goes to, do you know Casey Neistat, the YouTuber? Oh, yeah. So yeah. his New York studio, which I think he's left now, it was absolute carnage and chaos when you look at it from the outside. But it was, it was carnage and chaos with utility, right? Because everything, though messy, had its exact place. Um, and there's almost like yes. a, a nice analogy there, right? Everybody knows on YouTube what that studio looks like. Very few people know what the inside of their note should look like. Draw a comparison, right? Totally. I, I saw this with my dad. My dad's an artist. And he has a studio in the backyard of our home that I grew up in, practically. And it is just a disaster. Every surface has paint splattered. There's random stuff that he's found on the street that he's picked out of other people's trash that he thought was an interesting shape or looked kind of unusual that he put in there. Things from garage sales, um, you know, flea markets. It's just this absolute chaotic mix of everything that he is inspired by or likes or resonates with him or he might want to use. And then I would, and he's, you know, the most prolific artist I've ever met. He's produced thousands and thousands of paintings over his career. And then I would go to, and, and he's a professional. That's his job. That's his career. Then I go and I see a hobbyist and they often have the most perfect, you know, beautiful white canvas and their little pastels or, or, you know, um, charcoal things are like perfectly aligned. Nothing's been touched. It's like a museum. And I'm like, okay, this is what separates a hobbyist who wants to just have a pleasing little artistic setup versus a prolific creator. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So this is a very quick departure. It popped into my mind when you were talking about the organizing of a library, right? Finding books on shelves. You shared a few weeks ago on Twitter a video of you of your family going into a bookstore and seeing your book on the shelf for the first time. How did that feel? Oh my gosh, it was the best ever. It was the best ever. It's so irrational. You know, it's like, it's like, well, if something's on the internet, it's available to infinitely more people than any bookstore, right? And I know that in my head, I know that logically. And but what I think it is, is walking into that bookstore, you know, with my family and seeing this physical thing on the shelf. I think it, what it was is it reminded me of being a kid. You know, I, I lived, it's funny, I didn't live at the library because I wanted the newest books, right? The library often would have a delay. And so I lived really at Barnes & Noble. There was one near my high school. I would walk there after school and spend hours, sometimes the whole afternoon, uh, using the Barnes & Noble as a library, basically, just sitting in there and reading books for free. (laughs) Um, And those were some of the most impactful books on my entire life. I discovered things in those pages that just completely changed who I am. And so walking into a bookstore and seeing my book, I'm like, wow, I am like one of those. I'm now sort of part of the pantheon of books that may influence other people, young people, just the way that I was influenced. It's just so meaningful to feel that circle that come full circle. It's almost like I paid it back and I became, you know, the the person that I had read about. I don't know, just something hard to explain, but very meaningful about that. I like that you uh, you took the book, you moved up a few shelves and you had the cover out. If anyone <laughs> follows me on Instagram, they know that I have since started doing that in Waterstones over here in the UK on behalf of all of the podcast guests who I guess are now my internet friends. Like if I see, I was in a Waterstones a few weeks ago and John Yates, uh, a previous guest of mine, his surname ends with Y. That's no good for him. So although I, uh, I disorganized it, he was front and center cover out. I love that you did that. Um, so we've Funny. captured this information. We have organized it in a useful way. Um, next up, you say we need to distill this knowledge to make it more useful. How do we go about doing that? Yes. So once again, let, you've organized. Let's say you used Para. You organized my project. Okay, well, now you solved the organized problem. But once again, created a new problem. You never, you never solve the problems. You just solve a problem and then are given an even bigger problem <laughs> as your reward. Um, that's generally how creativity works. But um, so once you've organized it, 
you have these dedicated folders for each of the things, the projects and the goals that you're working on. Okay. But now let's say you, you kind of dive into one of those projects. It's your most important project. It's what's most active and urgent right now. Well, even if you've been very discerning and very picky in what you've kept, even if you only captured what resonates and you only organized according to what was actionable, it's still probably too much to work with, right? The, the, the working capacity, the working memory of humans is just notoriously low. Like we struggle to remember a seven digit phone number, right? Seven digits, seven single digits is already straining our capacity. And so whatever amount of information it is, even if it's, and it often is just five notes, 10 notes. And when I say a note, it's like, could be one sentence, maybe just a few bullet points, no more than 100 words or 200 words. They're, they're short. They're like snippets. They need to be distilled. I kind of liken it to like, like imagine a, like a suitcase, like a full suitcase. Even just a normal size suitcase needs handles, right? Without a handle, think how hard it would be to, you know, manhandle a suitcase. You'd It'd be so awkward and difficult. You need this one little point that allows you to just grasp it and then pick it up and move it or turn it or whatever. And that's what distilling is about is highlights. Highlights are the suitcase handles for content, right? When I click on a note and open it up, let's say it's only 50 or 100 words. It would take me five minutes to read that many words and some serious mental effort, right? You know, when you see just a wall of text and you're just like, okay, it's like, hold your breath. Let me, let me get into this. That holding your breath moment means that it's seriously taking energy. It's not a free, you're, you're not getting that, that mind uh, power for free, right? And so by adding highlights, your eye naturally goes straight to the highlight and knows at the very least what this note is about or what its main point is or what your main takeaway is from it. And then at that moment, you can decide in an, almost in an instant, is this relevant to my current needs? Is this relevant to the current stage of the project? Is this relevant to the very next problem that I'm trying to solve? If not, move on. You only spent 5, 10, 15 seconds, not 5, 10, 15 minutes. And that's what allows you to go through notes so fast. You know, 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds. And what you're left with at the end of just a few minutes of that is only the notes that are like so immediately actionable and everything else you can just ignore until you've reached the next milestone and decide to, you know, and decide to open up the door again and pay attention to other things. So on your point of solving one problem, creating another problem, and the fact that we all feel so busy right now, what time boxing or other method do you use to know that now is a time for you to get around to distilling okay i've got is it i've got 50 new notes is it it has been three days what kind of um break points do you use yeah i have all sorts of constraints uh they're sometimes called forcing functions because i know the reason i need these is i know my constant tendency is to over collect to procrastinate and say, oh no, I just need to read one more article, just, just a little more research. It's to what I call diverge. Diverging is like taking in more information, more research, more options, thinking about it more, considering more possibilities, which is important to do some of, right? Like you should consider a few different options before taking one. But if you are someone who's smart, you probably have the tendency to overthink 
If you are someone who really cares about get, doing things high quality, you'll have a tendency to procrastinate and be a perfectionist. If you're someone that's curious about a lot of things, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, it's a very admirable quality. You got, you just got to be aware of that tendency to just be curious and pursue so many different things that you don't actually go beyond the surface level of anything. You become, you know, a dilettante. You become a, what is it? Jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, and so I have forcing functions. Like one of them is, yes, uh, giving myself deadlines. Okay. I'm going to collect, you know, material for one day, sometimes two days, three days, not more than a week before I have to, even if I feel like I'm not ready, I have to converge and produce some kind of tangible artifact and get feedback on it. Uh, sometimes the constraint will be the number of notes, right? I, I, it's like, I'll tell myself I can save notes from anywhere, but no more than five, no more than 10. Uh, sometimes it will be making promises to people, right? Like I will have a draft of this piece of writing or this project plan or this, whatever it is by this date. And then I'm forced by that date to converge on something that I can share. Uh, it's accountability. Basically it's accountability to keep me constrained to time, to a timeline rather than spend endless amounts of time, just finicking and sort of endlessly meticulously taking notes on things. So to break the fourth wall for a minute, to pick up on a couple of things you said there, um, you have a persona on the internet where people think they know a version of you who is this like superhuman, hyperproductive person, right? Is it fair to say, based on how you just said the words procrastination, overthinking, delay, that without your second brain, you would just be like anybody else? You've just mastered this system to such an extent that it, it props you up as a normal person rather than as a superhero that people think you are. I, I, I notice this more and more and it's really blows my mind. Yeah. I think, I don't know what it is because I'm talking about productivity, maybe seeing how many, you know, how much content I'm putting out, what projects are reaching completion. They, yeah, they create this really, maybe it's cause I look like Elon Musk. They just build this image of me in their mind, which, you know, my wife recently tweeted, she said, uh, now that I know what your life is like in real life, I don't trust any thought leader. <laughs> I was like, it's so true. It's so true. If, if you just like followed me around for a day and just like looked over my shoulder, I don't think you would notice anything different. I don't think you would notice there's like nothing out of the ordinary, except just a handful of times a day, maybe just small moments where when I'm about to create something as small as writing an email, I reference notes instead of trying to use my first brain for that. Maybe if I'm reading an article, I'll save a few highlights. Maybe an email that's useful, I'll, I'll forward to my notes. There's probably just a, f a handful of little moments that are different from what anyone else does. Um, and I, I mean, I do think they make all the difference. But it's to me, especially as I, you know, become a homeowner and a husband and a father, what really matters to me is not so much like reaching these unprecedented heights of achievement. I've just learned, I've just been around the block enough that I know most grand achievements are pretty illusory. Like even something like publishing a best-selling book, you know, feels just incredible for like a week. And then you're just back to your normal life, the normal way you feel, your normal everyday routine. Um, so what I'm interested in more these days is working less, right? It's like the leverage that you get from a second brain, you can cash out of that through bigger and grander ambitions, which I have done in the past, or you can cash out of it by just having the same 
output with less time. Uh, and I think maybe if you if you sort of shadowed me for a day, that would be the thing maybe you'd be more surprised by is I rarely work past about 2 p.m. My work day is from like 8 or 9 in the morning until 1 or 2 p.m. And then I'm finished. I never work into the late afternoon or evening because it's just diminishing returns. There's just no point to that. Uh, so I don't know. There's different ways that a second brain can, can change your life. It just depends on largely the stage of life, what's important to you in that, in that season of your life. Uh, these days for me, it is like producing the same amount at the same quality in much less time. And so that's a nice segue into the final step of Express, right? Because you said if someone wanted to follow you around, um, notwithstanding watching you take the occasional note here and there, a bit like Taylor Swift, they would also see you kind of being able to pull on information very quickly to make use of it. And what I like about the step of Express is it is useful both in the big and the small, right? If you need a specific figure for an email, it's perfect. If you need to connect seven points for a pitch from three years ago, perfect. So Talk to me a little bit more about that express step, how it really brings everything we've spoken about together and produces those outputs. Yeah, this, I would say this is another moment where people who work with me often are surprised by this. You know, one time we were filming one of our first YouTube videos here in the, in our garage, which is the studio. And the morning of, you know, we had a, a, all this camera gear and stuff. There was a, you know, production uh, director, production assistant, like people were paying a lot of money to produce this video. And my, at the time, director of content, Mark said, um, hey, could you put together a script for this video? I think it was um, about uh, why you don't achieve your goals or something like that. And I was like, oh, sure. And I just walked over to the table over here, drew on three or four notes and had it ready within like 40 minutes, like, like ready to go, like a ready to go script. And then I was like, oh, here you go. And he's like, well, what's this? And I was like, oh, it's the script you wanted. And he said, oh, this was for like later. This was for like the next video shoot in like two weeks. I didn't mean for today. And I was like, oh, well, like, why not? I, you know, I drew on a blog post I had written. With the best parts highlighted, I looked at feedback that people had given me on that blog post. I looked at a few other things that I had learned or discovered since then, just snapped it together like having Lego pieces, and it was done. And I do that a lot. I, I think I regular, I'm able to regularly produce in minutes what takes people hours, or in hours what takes people days, or in days what takes people weeks or months. And that's because essentially I'll only do anything if the research is already done. And the research is already done in the form of notes in my second brain. And so you have explained this process to countless people, I'm sure, right? Literally countless people now. The book is a bestseller, but also through the course, through your blogs, through your tweets. Um, it's, it's a concept that people think they understand before they really do, because I thought I understood it before I really did, right? Um, in all of the people you've explained the process to and you've watched them go through this learning phase, what do people get wrong most often? What is the biggest blind spot? And also, if I can just add to that, since you hit publish on that book, since you sent it to the publishers, uh, I imagine some time has elapsed. Have you had any recent discoveries or epiphanies that you wish you could have included of how to make it just that that 3% better? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's only been a month. <laughs> but let me see if anything comes to mind. You know... There's this interesting thing where there's a core set of principles that are timeless that were 
applicable centuries ago and will be applicable probably centuries from now. And that's really what I tried to include in the book. That's sort of like, like if you think of the ocean, there's like the deep, the, the, the depths where very little changes. It's kind of like timeless and ancient. But then there's the surface level, which is like the surface of the ocean that is constantly changing. You know, there's fish and jet skis and storms happening and people swimming. That's like the apps. The apps are, I mean, every week there's some new announcement. Someone's getting acquired. There's a new feature, a new launch. Something is working. Something is not working. That is, I mean, it has changed dramatically in the, it's actually been about six months since I turned in the manuscript, but that stuff is not in the book and I wouldn't put it in the book because it just, it would be outdated in six months. So I hate to say it, but I kind of feel like what is in the book needed to be in the book. And it's really just engaging with this, like, there's like this subculture now. It's like an ecosystem. There's like a movement, which what I'm doing is a tiny, tiny, tiny part of so many YouTubers and writers and content creators and, you know, authors developing ideas around what it means for the average person to do knowledge management. I think it, it requires plugging into that and then just being in the flow of that, those tides and those waves is what's needed to just stay abreast of it all. I'm going to break the fourth wall again, just because I love doing this, right? Again, this persona that people think they they know about you, um, they put you on a level with people say like Ali Abdul, right? I know he's a friend of yours. Uh, he has his name on the back of the book. Do you actually watch other productivity and knowledge management YouTubers? Are you learning from these people just as much as they seem to be learning from you? Not really. <laughs> to be honest, I I don't like... What is the saying? Don't get high on your own supply. Like, I don't really like, I, I think what it is when I watch, say, a YouTube video on productivity, it's a combination of a few things. First of all, I've spent my whole career thinking about this. So I hate to say it, but it's, it's not likely that I'm going to hear something that I've never heard before from someone that is doing the same kind of thing that I'm doing. Right. Um, and second, it's almost like because I know how the sausage is made. I know how much was removed, how much was distilled, how much was left to the side. That's the stuff I want to know. I want to know the, the fringe ideas, the conspiracy theories, the subtle ideas, the exceptions, which is all the stuff that gets left out of especially like a popular piece of content that really does well. So what I tend to do is try to find really obscure sources of content, ones that not a lot of people know about. They're too complicated or complex or long or just obscure for, for people to have heard of. That's how I find novel ways of thinking, which then become incorporated into my work, which I then simplify and distill and becomes the original, the original content that I produce for my followers. It's almost like we're all part of like a knowledge supply chain. You know, you have to know like who are your suppliers and then who are your like retail customers, right? Like your, your, your supply chain needs to come from like a warehouse some place that is like the source of raw material. And then you have to take, you have to know who those people are. You should treat your suppliers well, right? You should, you should thank them. You should give them credit, but take their raw material, refine it and package it into your own product and then sell it to a completely different group of people, which is people who have less time and less interest in this subject than you. And that's why you're providing them value is you're distilling all of the stuff you've gotten over here into something that's more palatable. So I try to treat my suppliers well, and I try to treat my customers well. <laughs> I want to read you a quote you shared all the way back in 2019 
from a chap whose name I will try and not butcher the pronunciation of. Uh, Kunak Arens, I think is the correct pronunciation. Funnily enough, when I googled how to pronounce his name, your Q&A with him, where you asked how to pronounce his name, came up first. So great indexing from Google there. Um, but the reason this, uh, this excerpt stood out so much to me is as I was kind of considering what we should speak about today and how this all comes together, this excerpt succinctly explains the overarching benefit, I think, of capturing, organizing, expressing knowledge, but also how it's so applicable from everybody, from business leaders right the way down to children in their earliest years of school. So I'm going to read it to you and then hear your feedback on it. It's about 150 words. I've never tried to read 150 words for Beta on a podcast before. So let's see how this goes, right? Uh, so he says, learning requires effort because we need to think to understand and we need to actively retrieve old knowledge to convince our brains to connect it with new ideas as cues. To understand how groundbreaking this idea is, it helps to remember how much effort teachers still put into attempts to make learning easier for their students by prearranging information, sorting it into modules, categories, and themes. By doing that, they're achieving the opposite of what they intended to do. They make it hard for students to learn because they set everything up for reviewing, taking away the opportunity to build meaningful connections and make sense of something by translating it into one's own language. And then he says, it's like fast food. It's neither nutritious nor very enjoyable. It's just convenient. So what stood out so much about that to you? And how does that link to everything we've so far spoken about today? Wow, so many connections uh, to draw there. Yeah, Arns, he's it's just, he wrote a brilliant book. I really love that book. It's just, is so direct, unsparing and honest in just stating the, the truth and stating just how he sees things, honestly. And I think what that quote brought up for me is that, I mean, a couple things. One is, I mean, just the, the leading point that learning takes effort. And trying to remove all effort from it. You know, some people want to know, well, why do I have to take notes? Why do I have to capture anything? Can't I just Google everything? You can, but that is not the same as learning, right? Like everything on Google, I always say, has no competitive advantage because everyone else has access to it. Not only do they have access to it, theoretically, they can find it just as easily as you and maybe more easily. So ironically, the power of Google is in leveling the playing field, right? But you don't want a level playing field. No, like as an individual, say competitor, you don't want to compete on a level playing field. You want an unfair advantage. And the unfair advantages really come from willing to undergo difficulty. You know, we've all been sort of domesticated into, you know, bite-sized, snackable, fast food content. We want it shorter. We want not a YouTube video, give me a TikTok. Not a blog post, give me a tweet. You know, and I'm sure someone is working on even more snackable, low effort ways of consuming content than Twitter and TikTok. I'm sure it's happening. <laughs> um, and that there, there's honestly nothing wrong. There's a place for that. There's, even, there's a place for fast food. Like I'm not a fundamentalist here. Oh, there's something morally wrong about fast food. The problem is when it's most of your diet, right? The problem is when it crowds out and excludes everything else. So what I always tell people is just have a balanced diet. Like obviously have some slow cooked homemade information, have some information that you pick up at the drive through, have some information that is timely and ancient, that is timeless and ancient, but have other information that is, you know, late breaking news that, you know, just happened yesterday. All kinds of information I think have value, all, like virtually all kinds. It's about the balance and the holistic mixture of it that matters, not like 
you know, rigidly stick saying this one kind of knowledge is the best. So I want to finish here in the few moments that we have left. Um, I couldn't sit down and ask you about this, right? Because you say that you're driven by one question and it is how can humans reach their creative potential? And like you've said during our conversation, you've been chipping away at this for a long time now. So parking for a moment, the four specific steps in building a second brain, what other answers have you so far discovered to that question? And by the way, you can make this as long as you like. How can humans reach their creative potential? Yeah, I think that's been my, I mean, it started with my own question for myself. You know, I, I remember growing up and just having the sense that I have something to offer. I think there is something unique about my life experience. There's something valuable about the way that I see the world. But then sort of colliding with the real world, the, you know, the world of school, the world of university, the world of employment, where that's not really <laughs> people, you know, don't really call that forth in you. They more try to put you in a box. They try to fit you into a job description or a career path or a career ladder, uh, which I understand is, a, you know, as a practical necessity. Not everyone can be an artistic, you know, precious snowflake. <laughs> And yet, I think the world we're entering of the internet is this new frontier where you can, for the first time, make a living of almost anything, right? If you can package it up and communicate it in a way that people find valuable for any reason, then you can create your own destiny. You can create your own pathway, even if no one in all of human history has ever done that before. And I just think that's incredible. Like, that's not just about our careers. That's about living the lives you want to lead. That's about opening up a certain, you know, opportunities for our families. That's about being the kind of person with enough abundance that we have enough abundance to share, you know, to share with our communities, share with our neighborhoods, our cities, our countries, the world. Um, there's just so much that is there, but it, it all comes down back for me. At least the thing I'm most interested in is unlocking your creative potential. The potential's there, right? The creativity is there. I think most people have plenty of creativity. It's just activating it it's putting that key in the in the the lock and unlocking it um having a second brain is the best answer i've come up with for how to do that but there are deeper layers and often people find these layers when they start building a second brain which feels like this very straightforward practical problem i'm just building this thing but if you if you look at the later chapters in my book even very quickly that straightforward seeming process becomes a personal growth experience because you very quickly realize that the the real constraints are not in the software they're not in technology they're not in anything external the constraints are in you all the constraints that are in your psychology your baggage your blind spots your assumptions your fears your anxieties that's it right and so you can try to try to arrange the external environment to perfectly fit how you, you know, to perfectly fit your idiosyncrasies, or you can really look inside. And this is something I learned from Michael Singer, who has an incredible book called The Untethered Soul, is like, what is the part of me that is not okay with the, the way things already are? What is the part of me that always has to make a problem out of everything? What is the part of me that doesn't just see beauty and truth and possibility everywhere I look? If you can find the answer to those questions, I mean, that's, 
the game is over, right? It's like, then what else can stand in your way if those internal roadblocks have been dissolved? And that is a process of personal growth, self-awareness, emotional intelligence. It's basically a process of self-love. All the constraints and the obstacles that we generate within ourselves come from the fact that in the words of a mentor of mine, we've lost faith in our essential goodness. We've lost faith that who we are is fundamentally okay right now. And from that one little decision springs the world of productivity and problem solving. (laughs) Amazing. Tiago Forte, thank you so much for this. I'm going to make sure that your book, Building a Second Brain, is linked in the show notes below. If people want to go elsewhere to find your work, where can they go? Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, buildingasecondbrain.com is the, the central hub where you can find the book, uh, the course that I teach, the podcast that I produce, as well as other you know written free content from our blog. Uh, it's really the, the home base of the Second Brain universe. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 